Last week we started a, a brand new series here at Genesis, a series called So You're Dead, Now What? And if you weren't here last week and if you haven't had a chance to listen to last week's message, let me encourage you uh, to take a few minutes at some point during this week to do that. Uh, if you don't do that, this morning's message could almost seem somewhat incomplete or like all of the information isn't there. And so you can pick up a CD at the Info Hub or, or go to our website and listen to that message later on this week. But, but I'd really encourage you to do so. But we're talking about death and we're talking about the afterlife. And, and you might ask, well, why in the world are we talking about this? I mean, who talks about it? Well, we all face it. I mean, let's just be real for a moment and say that we all face death. And no matter what you believe, every one of us can agree that death is certain. I mean, everyone dies. You know, I couldn't help but be reminded of that this past week as we watched three famous celebrities, somebody that we've all known, all seen on TV, pass away. Uh, Ed McMahon, Farrah Fawcett, and Michael Jackson all passed away this past week. And while they all share death in common... The circumstances leading to their deaths were all very different. You know, Ed McMahon lived a, a full life and died at an old age. Farrah Fawcett fought a long and a difficult fight with cancer. And Michael Jackson died suddenly and very unexpectedly. And that's just how it goes at times, isn't it? I mean, we, we all face it and, and that's how it goes. People die and they die for various reasons. And, and we don't like to talk about it. But when you come to a point where you're, you're forced to face death, you know, you, you've got to ask some questions of yourselves. I mean, he died or, or she died, and, and now what? I mean, what do you do? And one day, you and I are going to die too. I mean, there'll come a time for every single one of us. We're all set to die. But unless you're a follower of Jesus Christ and Jesus returns, you know, in your lifetime, you and I are going to die. I'm going to die. And, and no one looks forward to it, but it's going to happen. And so here's what I found, and, and, and this is sort of how we opened with last week. And I think it's an important reason of why we're, we're talking through this together. That what you believe about death will have a lot to do with how you live. What you believe about death will have a lot to do with how you live. You know, and as followers of Jesus, we can look hopefully into the future because we know that our citizenship is in heaven. That this is our temporary home. But because we have been bought and we've been won by the blood of Christ, our home is in heaven. But if you aren't a, fo if you aren't a follower of Jesus, then you've got to decide what you're going to do with the subject of death, if anything. And if death is the end of you, I mean, are you okay with that? Well, this morning I'm going to share with you what I believe. And, and I believe this to be true. And, and what I share with you has nothing to do with my opinion. I want to share with you this morning what the Bible has to say about death and the afterlife. And I believe the Bible is God's word, and I believe that it is its truth, and that we can rely on it, we can count on it. Well, last week we started out by talking about death and, and the judgment, and again, take a few minutes this week to listen to it online if you haven't done so. But today I want to talk with you about hell. Yes, I said it, H-E double hockey sticks, all right? We're talking about hell this morning. Now, let's just get one thing out in the open before we start. I didn't jump out of bed this morning and throw my hands up in the air and say, yay, I get to talk about hell today. Okay, it's not like that at all. I mean, it's, it's not something that you get excited about. You know, it's been something that's kind of weighing on me a little bit, but, I, but just because it's hard to talk about or just because there might be some differing opinions or, or just because it's a touchy subject doesn't mean that we should avoid it. I mean, we've got to talk about it. And this morning, we're going to kind of take this 30,000 feet approach look at the subject. Uh, it's going to be kind of a broad look 
at the subject of hell and what the Bible has to say about hell. And if you want to go deeper in your study of hell, I'd be happy uh, to recommend some resources to you that will allow you to do it. But we're going to kind of take this broad look of it today because the truth is, the truth is that most people don't understand hell and many people don't even believe in it. There was a story told of a young girl, and, and she was set to be married, uh, just a few days away from, from being married, and, and all of a sudden she discovered, for whatever reason she hadn't known this before, that her fiancé didn't believe in heaven or in hell. And, and she was pretty upset about this, especially as a follower of Jesus, and, and so she rushed off to her mother, and her mother could tell that she was going through a lot of grief, and, and, and so this daughter just started kind of pouring out her heart, and she said, Mom, I'm just really upset by the fact that that, you know, my fiancé doesn't believe in heaven or hell. And, and her mom, you know, wanting, wanting to help her, you know, kind of quickly responded, you know, comforting her in this moment saying, you know, sweetheart, I don't want you to have to worry about this one bit because here's what I want you to do. You just focus on convincing him that heaven's real and I'll take care of convincing him that hell is very real. <laughs> that was a joke. It's not a true story. But The truth is that there are many different opinions on the reality and the purpose of hell. And I I was looking at one particular study this past week. And it was a study on people's opinions of death and heaven and and hell. And according to this study, 74% of the people in our country believe in heaven today. 74%, almost three out of four people believe in heaven. The same study revealed, the exact same study revealed that only four out of ten people believed in hell. Or in a literal hell. That's 40%. And I think the study like this reveals a couple of things. First of all, it reveals that most people don't understand or choose to believe what the Bible has to say about this subject, about hell. And second, I think it proves, it, uh, it proves or it sort of lends to this menu approach that we sometimes have as Christians. That, that we look at Christianity or we look at the Bible and you say, you know, I'll take some of that and I'll take some of that. You know, I really, I really like that grace stuff. I, I really like the forgiveness stuff. Uh, I really like the love stuff. I'll take all of that, but I'll choose to pass on the sin thing. I'll choose to pass on the justice thing. And, and, and don't give me any of that hell portion either because I, I don't want any of that. You know, I'm not interested in those. And, and, and while the study shows that 40% of people believe in hell, I think more probably, or honestly, many more probably have an incre- incorrect position or belief on the doctrine of hell. You know, is it anyone's fault? Well, not necessarily. We just don't talk about it. But we're going to do that today. And, and, and there's something else that's happening here And when it comes to the subject of hell and the afterlife that I think has left a lot of people confused. And I think that Satan is responsible for this. Because I believe that one of his attacks on people, especially Christians today, is to try and convince people that hell is not real and that God would never allow such a thing. And why do this? Because if he can get you to deny hell, then he can get you to deny the need for Jesus. That Jesus doesn't really matter in the equation. And if he can get Christians to deny hell, he can take away away your motivation or any urgency that you might have to share your faith with others. And that's pretty unfortunate. And so let's look to the Bible to see what the Bible has to say about hell. And again, we're going to kind of stay relatively broad on this subject this morning. But before we do that, let's start with a question. Let's start with a couple of questions. And I think these questions are are fair questions that every one of us, whether you're a follower of Jesus Christ or not, we can all agree on. There's just a couple of questions here. The first question is, why does hell exist? All right, why does hell exist? And why would a loving God create a place or allow a place like hell anyways? 
And, and so we're going to kind of begin there. And let me just point out from here that while these questions are fair questions, I think for anyone to ask, these questions really reveal some of our flaws and our deficiencies in understanding who God is and how great is and, and His holiness. I mean, we just, we don't understand His holiness. We can't fathom it. And so let's look at two biblical reasons, two biblical reasons for why hell exists. The first one is simply hell exists for God to deal righteously with Satan. Hell exists for God to deal righteously with Satan. Now, most people think that Satan is the ruler of hell, all right, that it is his kingdom, that he created it, that he picked out the carpet, you know, that he got it fixed up just the way, you know, that he wants it. It's like his bachelor pad or something. I mean, isn't it true? I mean, we kind of all get caught up into that type of thinking. We think like that. And then we get these warped images in our mind of what Satan looks like. That he's this little red guy with this pitchfork. And it's kind of like he stands at hell and he's kind of the welcome committee, you know, for all who are coming in. And it's almost like he's directing traffic or something. Say, you know, come on, keep the lines moving. Get your passports ready. You know, country music lovers to the left. You know, cat lovers to the right. Come on in, you know. I'm just kidding. I don't have any problem with, with you know, country music or cats. But we think that Satan is like the ruler of hell or something, you know, that he's just welcoming people in. But that's not the case. The Bible doesn't say anything about that. Part of the reason that hell exists, according to God's word, is to punish Satan. Matthew chapter 25, verse 41. It says, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, who was Satan prepared for? Or what was, Satan pre- or what was hell prepared for? It was prepared for the devil and his angels. And so one of the reasons that hell exists is for God to be able to punish Satan. But there's another reason. The second one is that hell exists for God to deal righteously with unbelievers. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 says, He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. Now, I'm not going to lie to you. And I'm going to acknowledge from right here that this is a very tough verse to read. It's a difficult verse to read. I mean, there's no getting around it. And if you're new to all of this, you know, I can't blame you for having a hard time trying to understand what this is like. And I mean, it really kind of calls God's heart and maybe even his character into question. And we'll talk about that more in a few minutes. But even from here, whether you choose to believe the Bible is accurate or whether you choose to believe that God, Bible is, is God's word, I, I think we all have to agree that it is fairly clear that hell exists for at least two reasons. It exists for God to deal righteously with Satan and it exists for God to deal righteously with unbelievers. But let's take a look at it from another angle. I want, I want to take a look at another story that Jesus told. And if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open it up to Luke chapter 16. To Luke chapter 16. Now, we're going to look at a parable, a story uh, that Jesus told about hell that maybe will help us understand this, the, the, the reality of hell a little bit better. You know, Jesus often taught in parables. Now, the word parable basically means story. Jesus taught with stories. He, he created pictures for people to see that weren't necessarily true, but were very believable, where he drew from particular things that were happening in culture and society to, to put a frame around a subject where it matters so that people could better see it. And, and the stories were very accurate. And so Jesus told these stories. He, he told these parables to make a point, 
to get his great message across. And each of these parables had a message. And so we're going to look at this one here in Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 19. We'll start there. Luke chapter 16, verse 19. Again, Jesus is telling this story, and here's what he says. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. And so from the start of this parable, we discover at the beginning that there's a rich man, and he liked to dress in purple and fine linen. Now, do any of you immediately have the picture of MC Hammer in some sort of silk shirt and hammer pants coming to mind? Because as I read this, this was the first person that, that, that kind of came into to my scope of reference. I know I'm ruining the story for all of you now, but this man dressed in purple, fine linen, and lived in luxury. And this guy is rich. I mean, and he wasn't just a little rich. I mean, he was stinking rich. And if you look at the original Greek, the word luxury suggests that he ate nothing but fine foods. And you know what I'm talking about. I mean, this is like the cowboy ribeye from Ruth's Chris every single night. And so this guy eats good and he dresses good. Verse 20. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat that which fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. And so we've got another man in the story. There are two men. We've got the rich man and then we meet the second man. And this man, his name is Lazarus. And he's poor, uh, he's sick with sores all over his body, and the only way that he knows to survive is to beg. And he begs on this rich guy's property. Now, to the rich man's credit, I think it's worth pointing out that he isn't all that bad. A bad guy would easily have had the beggar thrown off his property, if not thrown into jail, but this, this, this rich man doesn't do that. And so he was good enough to allow the beggar to stay on the property and to eat some of his leftovers. But if you knew Jesus and you knew the way that he taught, and you knew the slant of many of his parables and the message that he was trying to get across to his followers, you know that he talked a lot about the importance of followers of Jesus reaching out to the poor, of sacrificing, of going over and above to make sure that others who didn't have any had something. And so Jesus taught that part of the gospel, part of the good news, meant helping those in need. And so from this story, we can assume that the rich man doesn't know Jesus. Because he really isn't doing anything proactively to help meet the needs of this beggar. Verse 22. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And so this man, this Lazarus, uh, he goes to Abraham's side after death. Now any Jew hearing this would associate Abraham's side as the place called paradise. or, Or maybe the place that we would refer to as heaven. And remember, when Jesus was on the cross, he was hung next to the thief. And when the thief repented, Jesus' words to him, today you will be with me in paradise. And so when the Jew heard the word paradise, it meant something to them. And so the beggar went to paradise or heaven, but the rich man wasn't so lucky. Look at the next verse, verse 23. This rich man, he also died and was buried in hell where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. And so this verse tells us that this rich man is in hell and now he is in torment. And the Greek word for hell here is actually the word Hades, H-A-D-E-S, if you're taking note, the word Hades. And, And you can read later on in the Bible that death and Hades will eventually be thrown into what's called the Greek word limpur. And this Greek word was the word for what the Bible calls the lake of fire. And so after the judgment, Hades will be thrown into its final place, the ultimate eternal place of punishment 
a place called the lake of fire. Now, this isn't to be confused with purgatory, okay? This isn't what we're getting at here. And the Bible has no biblical support for purgatory. But to make it simple, let's just say, all right, and we'll be somewhat fair, and this is a little bit of a stretch, that it's almost like there are two stages to hell. The first stage is the stage called Hades. And to make it easy, we're just going to refer to it as hell. But again, that the Bible says that it was a place of torment. And the conflict that begins to emerge in this parable, from the rich man's perspective at least, is that there is this great chasm or this great divide that exists between hell and exists between heaven. And the rich man isn't able to cross it. He's in hell and he can't cross it. It's too late. He's in hell and Lazarus is in heaven next to Abraham's side and he can see it all. And Lazarus is doing great, but the rich man is miserable. Verse 24. So he called to him, the rich man, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. Now, I know that it's kind of a stretch to try and comprehend what this is like for this rich man. And, and so you'd really have to use your imagination to even try and understand what this pain is like. But the rich man is in hell. And as the Bible tells us, he is under this great deal of torment. And then he cries out to Abraham in heaven, begging that Abraham do anything. You know, anything at all for him to help relieve this pain. Even a drop of water on his tongue would help. I mean, he's hurting in such a way that it can't even be described. Now, I think we have to just stop here for a moment and assume that there's a lesson that Jesus is trying to communicate from this parable when it comes to the subject of hell. And he's answering the question of what is hell really like? And I think from this parable, we can assume that hell is a place of unspeakable suffering. You know, the, the word used here in the NIV is the word torment, but it's a place of unspeakable suffering. Suffering. A couple of different verses might help with this. Matthew chapter 5, verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, Jesus said, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now, I know it's easy to kind of read a verse like this, think it's a little strange, a little obscure, and to just kind of race on by and keep going. But imagine for a second what it would be like to take a spoon and dig your eye out. Okay, I know that's not a pretty picture. All right, or imagine what it would be like to take a saw and to go ahead and, and, and knock off one of your arms and to knock off one of your legs. I mean, Jesus is trying to make a point here in saying that, you know, this is better than the pain, the torment that will exist in hell. Revelation chapter 14, verses 10 through 11. It says, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast and his image, or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. And so this verse here says that the smoke of torment, this pain, this unspeakable suffering, will rise forever and ever. And the torment never ends. Now, what else does it say? It says there will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and his image. What else? That, that hell is like this fiery furnace. You know, that it's like this place of burning sulfur. You know, it says that there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And as we read these words, I mean, think of some of the things that you hear people say from time to time or even joke about. Well, you know, things like, well, if, you know, if I'm going to hell one day, you know, so be it. 
Just me and the fellas, we'll be down there together, we'll drink some beers, we'll play a lot of poker, you know, and everything will be just fine. I mean, that is so unfortunate because it is so untrue. I mean, there, there's nothing to this. I mean, we laugh and, and, and we joke about such things, but, but it's not like that at all. The Bible teaches that hell is a place of, of complete and absolute isolation. You know, I mean, there will be no parties in hell. You know, there will be no gatherings together. It is total separation from God, and it is total and absolute isolation from other people. I mean, think about how they punish people today in prisons with solitary confinement. And this is so much worse. You know, not just the isolation, but the physical pain too. And in the parable that Jesus is teaching from, the rich man screams out, for some sort of help, some sort of response, and, and he's alone forever. And, and I know these are tough words to read and to hear, but according to the Bible, hell is a very real place. I want to introduce you to another word or another image used in Scripture to describe hell. And it's a real place that was used as a point of reference to help people understand what hell was like. The word is Gehenna. And if you're taking notes and you want to write that down, it's G-E-H-E-N-N-A. It's the word Gehenna. And it's a word that's used 13 times in 11 different verses in the Bible. And Gehenna comes from this place in the Bible called the, Hin- the Valley of Hinnom. Uh, the Valley of Hinnom was a real place in the Old Testament that came to be referred to as this place called Gehenna. And the word Gehenna means everlasting punishment. It means everlasting punishment. Gehenna was a place where the fire always burned. I mean, literally, there were fires burning in the valley of Gehenna 24-7. And what happened is that over time, some people began worshiping a false god, a false god by the name of Molech, M-O-L-E-C-H. And Molech was this fictitious fire god, and they believed that he lived within the fires of Gehenna. And if you worshipped Molech, one of the things that you were required to do was to take your firstborn son and walk to the edge of the valley and throw your firstborn son as a sacrifice into the fires of Gehenna. And so this is the reputation that Gehenna had. You know, you'd sacrifice your son there. The fires always burn, and that's what you would do. You would go there to make a sacrifice. And so that was the reputation. Now, Gehenna was located to the south of Jerusalem. And over a period of time, it eventually became this huge garbage dump. And again, the fires constantly burned there, but people would take dead bodies of people, you know, criminals and and dead animals, and they would throw them into this fire. And so all of the garbage from the city was thrown into the fire, and every once in a while, the wind would shift, and this, you know, these fumes and this stench would blow into the city. I mean, you've been around central Indiana and near some hog farms on wrong days, you know, when the wind is blowing just right. Well, same here. And it would smell so bad that the people wouldn't leave their homes. And so Jesus compared Gehenna to hell. And the rich guy in the parable that Jesus told uh, was in hell, um, he, he realized that as much as he begged, he was not going to be rescued. And, and finally, as we see in the parable, he realized that he was doomed for life. And, and so he changed his language. And in desperation, look what he says next in, in verse 27. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, and let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Let's wrap up this morning, if we can, by just making four quick observations that we can learn about hell, I think from Jesus' parable right here. The first one is that the rich man was fully conscious. 
I mean, he was aware of everything that was happening around him. His memory was active. He was aware of the pain. You know, he wasn't in some sort of deep sleep. He wasn't destroyed. He was conscious and he was hurting. And and after death, those who put their trust in Jesus Christ, you know, while here on the earth, you know, we will go to heaven. You know, that's the promise that we sing. That's that's the, the redemption that has been offered to us. You know, we go to heaven and we're going to talk more about heaven next week. But those who deny Jesus and refuse his love, as the Bible teaches, will go to hell. And they will be fully aware of everything that's happening. But there's another observation to make that we can see in this parable. And the second one is that his eternal destiny, this rich man's, was irreversible. I mean, he didn't have an opportunity to buy his way out. I mean, he couldn't work his way out of all of this. It was done. His destiny was already sealed at his death. His eternal destiny was settled while on the earth when he rejected the ways and the teachings of Jesus, and now there was no way out. And and I think for you and me, as we hear that, as we realize that, we have to be reminded that you don't get another opportunity after death to plead your case. You know, you don't get another chance to receive Christ's love. I mean, you and I have a decision to make while here on the earth, and for those of you who have never done this, there is a great urgency. I mean, we all die, and you don't know when your day will come. And so why would you wait? Why would you prolong such a decision? The third observation is that this man, this rich man, he knew what he was experiencing was just. And I think this is pretty important, because notice that while he complained about the pain, he did not complain about God or about this being unfair or unjust or not right. And I think it's because at this moment, this man finally and for the first time knew and understood the holiness of God and how great he was. And he realized that he had rejected Christ's love and forgiveness all throughout his life. And so in doing so, God was just really turning him over to what he had already chosen, this man for himself. And that kind of leads to the last sobering observation. And that, that with this rich man, he, he pleaded with someone to help his loved ones. Look at verses 27 and 28 again. He says, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my house, for I have five brothers, and let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of judgment. I mean, he basically was crying out in desperation, somebody go and help them. Because this rich man believed in the reality and the horrors of hell. And he pleaded with Abraham to send someone to the earth to warn his family so that they might receive Christ's love and put their trust in him. Now, I'm not sure we really give credence to the reality and to the horrors of hell. I mean, who wants to? I mean, who really wants to sit around and spend time thinking about it this way? I mean, I sure don't like about it. I don't sure like, I mean, we don't, you know, we don't sing songs about the horrors of hell, you know, in our worship services. We, we sing the best part, the good news. And either it's because we don't understand it or we don't believe it or we just choose not to think about it. But I think the warning for all of us is that Satan likes it that way. I mean, Satan is actively opposed to God and to Jesus and to the ministry that's happening in this world today. He knows that if he can keep Christians from thinking about hell, then he can keep us from getting too concerned about helping people find their way back to God. That if we deny hell, then we'll have a greater chance of denying a need for Jesus too. I mean, hell is God's punishment for Satan, but it's his punishment for those who reject Jesus. Friends, hell is just as real as heaven, and the Bible teaches that. And so I guess as we wrap up, you know, I guess there are are any number of reasons 
that I could share this with you this morning. But let me just talk for a second to those of you who are followers of Jesus Christ. You know, you've, you've put your trust in Jesus and, and you know that your eternal life is through Him and, and it's heaven. My prayer is that this morning you're going to recognize or be reminded that you haven't been taking your life or your faith or even the reality of death and hell very seriously. And my guess is this applies to most of us as it even has applied to me this past week. And maybe you've been looking at your life and thinking that it's a lot more earthly than it's heavenly, that your priorities are not really eternal ones at all. And so maybe this morning you might ask God to forgive you. You may just say, God, forgive me. Thank you for reminding me of the reality of what's happening here in this world. And, and you might say, God, give me a greater perspective. Give me a greater eternal perspective and a greater love for people who don't know Jesus Christ. You know, break my heart for people in this world today. And, and I'm sure that every one of us, every single one of us in this room, that we could name family members and friends who are far from God right now, who haven't put their trust in Him. And, and so I want to invite you to get concerned about that. To let your heart break over that, just as this rich man, from his perspective. I want to invite you to pray for your friends. You know, even today, write their names down and just start praying for them every day. You know, pray that God will give you the opportunities to make a difference in their life. And let's pray that God will really make a, lot, a difference in our lives too and make our lives different. And if, if God can start doing a greater work in your life and in my life, then he can start doing some even greater things in this church, in this community. I mean, our mission as a church is to help people find their way back to God. I mean, that's our passion. That's our heartbeat. And it comes straight out of Jesus' command at the end of Matthew when he said, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. And that's why we're here. I mean, that's our purpose as a church. I mean, say it however you want, but we are about helping others find their way back to God. It's about helping others to know Jesus because Jesus is the one who bridges the gap. He's the one who bridges the chasm. He makes us right before God. He changes hearts. He transforms lives. Jesus gives a reason for, to, for, for you and I to live. And, and the rich man, he begged Abraham to send someone to warn his family. And so let's respond to that request. Well, let's let those words haunt us, you know, even as we leave here today. That Jesus Christ died for our sins, and maybe that can motivate us to share his great news. Because he made things right. And if we put our trust in him and seek his forgiveness, then we will be forgiven and we will receive eternal life in heaven one day. And, and I'm not going to lie to you either. I, I, wish, I wish hell wasn't true. And, and I think it's okay to say that. And, and I like the way that, that this great writer, follower of Jesus, C.S. Lewis, you know, said it. He said, I would love to get to the end one day and find out that hell wasn't true and that in the end we're all going to heaven. But even C.S. Lewis agreed that denying hell is nothing but a wish or poor theology. There is no proof. And if you're going to believe the Bible to be God's word, the proof that it is there, that it is true. And so let me wrap up this morning. The last thing that I want to say is just a few words to those of you who don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Or maybe even a word to those of you who don't like this subject. Or maybe you find yourself in a position where this is just confirming some of the impressions that you have of church or of God. Because if you don't like this subject, I want to make sure that you see both sides of the story. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, Peter writes, The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. 
Can, can I ask you for a moment to just reflect on the last half of that verse? Because what does it say? Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. I mean, I can't think of a greater window into the heart of God this morning. God does not want anyone to die. God does not want anyone to go to hell. And and this verse shows me in the entire Bible for that reason that God is a loving, motivated God who has his heart set on rescuing the lost people in this world today. I mean, the entire Bible, the entire story of creation, from the flood, you know, to the people of Israel, to the tabernacle, to the temple, to the death and resurrection of Jesus, to the work that is left to be done in this world today by the church, it's all about rescue. It's all a picture of a God who is motivated and making sure that everyone who is lost come to know Jesus Christ. And it's about helping people find their way back to him through the life that only Jesus Christ can offer. And so the, I want to end this morning by, by sharing with you another parable. It's a parable that Jesus wrote, but he didn't direct this one. And he didn't even write this particular story. But as you watch this parable, this short parable, I want you to see that this is God's story, that it's Jesus' story, and that it's your story and my story too. The good news is, is that's not a true story. The great news is that it is. And it's the story of a father who loved us so much that he sent his own son to save you and me. Second Peter 3.9 again says, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. John chapter 3 verse 16 says, For God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And 2,000 years ago, God sent his son Jesus into the world as a bridge, as a way back to God. And it proves that God is good. And if you've never put your trust in him, I want you to know that you can do that here this morning. We're going to conclude with this last song. And after the service, we'll have a group of people up front here that would love to talk with you more about what that means. And and maybe you'd like to be baptized. And we're going to do that here in our church in a few weeks. But we're going to sing this last song. And I want us to sing it as a song of celebration. That Jesus Christ is the answer to the pain of this world that he's already been offered that he's already given his life and he's just waiting for you and me to put our trust in him and that is the good news and that is the great news and that's why we exist as a church will you stand with me let's pray together God we thank you for the reminder that Jesus Christ is the answer to the problem of pain and suffering and sin in this world today and we thank you that you were willing to send your own son for us that he might live and die but that he came back from the dead, Lord, for victory over death and to give life to all of us here. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.